Good morning, Cedar Home. Everybody hear me all right? All right, we're getting there. Right on. Well, I, uh, I have some experience speaking in a big room like this with uh, concrete floors. Uh, that's when we uh, built out our uh, second worship center at Cascade Church, the church that we started back in Monroe 26 years ago now. Um, we had the, the same kind of setup. So um, this isn't as echoey, though. So thanks, guys. Can everybody just turn around and say thanks to the sound guys for uh, all that they do? Right on. All right, so we need to do that every once in a while because when is the only time that we notice them and turn around and look? <laughs> when something went sideways, right? And then we're all giving you the death glare. So we, we appreciate all that you do uh, to make everything work here. Um, I had hoped to have uh, my wife Amy with us, with me today. Um, but uh, she's attending Cascade in Monroe. Our two teenage sons are 13 and 15 years old, and they joined a mountain biking club this week. So after church, they're going mountain biking for three hours, and they want to know, should we wait for you, Dad? I'm like, no, I don't want to ride up and down hills for three hours. Um, so she's uh, there with them. I've got a, a picture here. If you guys could advance to the first slide. Uh, this is Amy. We've been married, like I said, uh, 35 years. Been a pastor for 36-ish, somewhere around there. Uh, we have six kids and 6.4 grandkids. Um, got a, the seventh is on his or her way be born uh, towards the end of July. But uh, this two weeks ago was a crazy busy uh, stretch at our household and, and within our family. Our two oldest daughters uh, were due three and a half weeks apart, but they had their babies four days apart. And then right in between, um, we had a death in the extended family um, right in the middle of those two births because birth and life just seemed to be a part of our existence, right? Um, so we have been enjoying welcoming these two. I think I'm holding Joe Ash and Amy's holding Easton. And uh, yesterday I got to hold both of them at the funeral, so I'm a happy papa. Uh, over the last three years, I, I stepped into this role, uh, stepped out of the church that we had planted in Monroe, Washington, um, at, right at the beginning of 2020. I felt like God was, was saying, hey, put your hand in the air uh, for this. And um, we had, and, and we'd stepped away from the church, and as a founding pastor, that, that's just a really painful transition. It's like leaving one of your kids and, and, and moving on. Um, but I was excited to, to get to know the churches uh, here in our district. There were about 92 uh, in 2020. Now there's about 105, 106 uh, in our district. But um, stepping into the role uh, was, was a significant transition on its own. And then exactly two months later, do you remember what happened? Yeah, all the churches were um, not meeting. Not closed, but just not meeting. And all of a sudden, uh, we're trying to figure out how do we get everybody um, online with content and online with uh, finances and all of that sort of thing. And so that became a push for well over a year. And, uh, and we've had a lot of transition take place. I was speaking recently with um, my predecessor, uh, Pastor Steve Welling. Some of you know him. And I said, hey, bro, over the years, how many churches went through lead pastor transition? And he's like, I, I don't know, maybe in 12, 14 years, we had 10, maybe, across the whole district. And he said, why? Why do you ask? And I said, because we've had 27 in less than three years. Okay, I'm not very good at math, but, but I think, Brian, you can help me out. It, it, 27 feels like 
28%, somewhere around there. So that was a big number, and you guys are living that story right now, aren't you? And I just want to say, um, you have an exceptional search team that is doing the work of uh, praying and uh, vetting candidates and uh, meeting, and they, they take that role very, very seriously. Continue to pray for them. Uh, Kevin Hollinger, uh, who we just hired in January, three-quarter time to be our church strengthening director. I think he spoke here and started out your Joshua series, and uh, I'm going to be taking it the next step this morning. So in the midst of all that has been happening, Despite circumstances, despite three years of a lot of uncertainty, even not yet knowing who your next lead pastor is going to be, despite all of this, we do not lose heart. Amen? We do not lose heart. We press forward. And at Converge Northwest, um, for those of you who don't know, we used to be Swedish Baptists, then we were the Vanilla Baptist, Baptist General Conference. It just means we didn't have any really freaky... Um, doctrinal stuff, and we baptize uh, by immersion. We have some for, sort of uh, congregational polity. But we're, we're spanning five states, and they're, of course, the small states in the Union, Alaska, Montana, <laughs> Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. But we exist for a very simple purpose. Uh, Converge Northwest exists to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus by starting and strengthening churches. And we do that by making disciples who make disciples. But, but our mandate is very clear. We're going to strengthen the churches that exist, and we are going to start new churches. And so despite the difficulties of the last several years, we press forward. We do what the church of Jesus Christ has always done since the very beginning. And incidentally, this isn't as bad as it can get. Even when everything was shut down and the pandemic was raging and we had cultural upheaval and racial upheaval and financial uncertainty, the Church of Jesus Christ has not only survived but has thrived through circumstances far more difficult than ours. Two thousand twenty, January. Uh, I've been in this role for about two and a half weeks. And there was a, uh, a conference in Long Beach, California. Uh, it was the first trip that I was taking in this new role as, as regional um, lead, regional president. And uh, we were stacking hands as the 10 districts of Converge nationwide and saying, we're believing God for a surge of church planting between 2020 and the end of 2025. And so the districts had been praying, they'd been, been thinking together with boards and, and had sort of stacked hands and said, we're believing God, and the total came to, we're believing God for 312 new churches in a five-year span. That's a lot of churches. That's a lot of new churches. It's a lot of new campuses for churches. And our bite of that here in the Northwest is we said we're believing God for 25 new churches. We're going to believe that we could grow by 25% over these same five years. And then the pandemic hits, and all of us were looking at each other going, did we miss something? We just set this, this huge goal. It's called a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. We said, we're believing God for this thing, but you know, we, we take our church planters through what's called an assessment center. It's, it's basically four days of open heart surgery without the benefit of anesthesia. We put these candidates through, um, through a very rigorous process. 
And, uh, and, and the first five church planting assessment centers in 2020 were canceled. And we're wondering, how, where are we going to get the planters? How, how did we miss this? By God's grace, I believe what was happening in 2020 is anybody who God had been tapping on the head and saying, hey, I want you to, hey, I want you to step out and, hey, I want you to take a risk and lead in this. I think a lot of folk realized the world really is going to hell. And I really do need to step forward in faith and in obedience. And, and here's the crazy thing. Even though we had canceled our first five assessments, we ended up at the end of 2020 having assessed and approved more church planting couples in the year of the pandemic than we have in any other year in our history as a movement. Because God is on the move. And so very quickly, I want to show you a couple of slides. Um, over the last three years, even through the pandemic, uh, we've had nine church plants that have been deployed, We've had three campuses added. Uh, we're about to, to do a church planting assessment center down in Mill Creek, Bothell area next month. And we should end this year, 2023, with somewhere between 15 and 17 new church deployments. Despite the upheaval, despite the sense of what is God really up to. Now, can we just pause for a moment and say, yay God? Isn't that amazing? And uh, some of these, these folks you may get to know, go ahead and, and run to the next slide, but we're, we're seeing some churches go into areas that we've not traditionally had a church. Kennewick, Washington is one of those. Uh, we have two new churches that are, are looking to deploy this year around Spokane, one in Liberty Lake, one in uh, North Spokane. Uh, the couple that is on the left here are on their way to us. They're Filipino church planters, Filipino church planters living in Saipan, and uh, we've been working with a, a lawyer to bring them over on a religious worker visa, and they'll be planting a church around the Federal Way area, reaching largely Filipinos in that region. So be praying as, uh, as you're praying for your own church and what is coming next for you and some uncertainty surrounding that, would you also join me in praying for uh, some of these plants? and uh, the, those that are coming up through the, the process as well. All right, so you have been uh, just beginning a study in Joshua. That's what I understand, right? Kevin preached Joshua chapter one. All right, good job. <laughs> I'm just looking, you guys are all staring at me, so I'm looking for a little help. All right, uh, Joshua chapter one. Um, incidentally, I've been listening to the Old Testament as I drive, and I'm doing a ton of driving these days. And yesterday I listened to most of Numbers, and the connections to what we're going to talk about today have been amazing. Joshua chapter one. Uh, Joshua speaks of victory through obedience. Contrast this with the very next book, the book of Judges, reveals failure through compromise. Joshua, victory through obedience, judges, failure through compromise. And last, year, last week, you guys focused on chapter 1, which just beats this rhythm over and over and over again. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Let's say that aloud together. Be strong and courageous. Those are good words for us, just as they were good words for God to say to Moses and Moses to say to Joshua and Joshua to speak to the people. Be strong and courageous. At our house, um, we have had a prayer on the, the whiteboard in the dining room for a long, long time. 
And the prayer is one that, that we've been praying for our kids and praying for ourselves for a number of years now. And the prayer is very simple. We pray this for our kids, for our grandkids, for ourselves. Father, would you help us to have the wisdom to know the truth and the courage to do it? Father, would you help us to have the wisdom to know the truth and then the courage to do it? Today, we're going to be opening Joshua to chapter 2, and I want to take us through the narrative, the story of Rahab. You guys remember anything about Rahab? This is a study, I believe, this morning in outrageous grace. I brought a piece of my luggage with me. Um, this thing has traveled more miles than I ever thought I would travel in my life just in the last three years. Um, this is actually my second bag because my first one was destroyed, so my wife was generous enough to say, go ahead and move the camouflage tag over to this one and, and use it. We all have baggage. It's a story of a couple of guys that, that were talking, and, and one of them says, man, you, you look so depressed. You look so down, so heavy. What could you be thinking about that makes you so depressed? And the guy whose face is a little downcast, he says, well, it, it's my future. The first guy says, well, what in the world would make your future so hopeless? And the guy looks at him and says, my past. My past. See, we all have baggage from our past, don't we? The past can load us down with baggage like guilt, fear, anxiety, regret, shame. Man, shame is such a powerful motivator for us, isn't it? We all have baggage. Sometimes the baggage is, is from our families. And incidentally, um, I think you probably know this, but every family is dysfunctional. Can we just say that out loud? Every family. And, and uh, I, I've said that before uh, preaching, and my dad was in the audience, and he was a pastor at, at uh, North Shore for 30 years and other places for another 25. And he, he reacted to that, and he's like, what are, what are you talking about? What? Okay, well, I'm just going to mess my kids up in a different way than you mess me up. That's just, right? because I'm a sinner raising sinners, and I come from a long line of pretty good sinners. Whether we want to admit that or not, whether we, we like it or not, we all come from dysfunctional families, and, and we carry some of that with us. And, and so, for some of us, our past was hor horrific in our family of origin. And the reality is, even if you had a, a, a close to perfect family upbringing, the reality is that we bring our own sin choices and our own selfishness into the mix as well. And so we've contributed to some of the baggage that we carry, whether it's our own immoral choices or, or words that we've spoken or offenses that we've held on to. And so oftentimes we, we come into a moment like this on a Sunday morning and, and behind our smiles there's regret. <laughs> There's perhaps even a little bit of shame, and, and we're, we're certainly not going to lead with our baggage, our past. We all carry things from our past, and, and today, my hope is that as we talk through Joshua chapter 2 and the story of Rahab, is that, that you will see that your past does not have to dictate your future, that your past doesn't have to haunt you, 
that your past doesn't have to hold you back, and that God wants to heal the baggage that all of us carry with his outrageous grace. And so can we lean towards that in these next few moments? Joshua chapter 2, before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words that we read from your word, the words that I speak in these next moments, be guided, led by your spirit. And would you do that thing that only you can do? Would you speak to each of our hearts by your spirit exactly where we're at this morning? And we said, Jesus, whatever, whatever it is that you ask of us, if you want to speak a word of encouragement and courage, if you want to speak a little bit of challenge, if you want to bring healing, whatever it is, Lord, we say the answer is yes. The answer is yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter 2, Rahab, a woman with a past, but an individual who was able to start over and begin a journey that gave her a second chance at life and at a future, and it transformed her character and her destiny, the destiny of her family, by God's outrageous grace. The story of Rahab is a story that is gospel-centered. This is what Jesus came to offer us, was a second chance, forgiveness, a new way forward, be able to be adopted into a larger family and brought to a legacy of health and flourishing. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Here's what's been going on. The Israelites had left Egypt as God dramatically brought them out and was running his own rescue operation. And then because of their sin, their failure to listen to God, they actually had to do laps in the desert for 40 years. Right across from Jericho was the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan from Jericho was the plain of Moab. Now, the Israelites had passed through that place more than once before over those 40 years. In fact, they had been camped there more than a million strong by most estimates within sight of Jericho for weeks. And so that's why there's this, this response immediately. The king is on the alert. He's, he's paying attention because he knows that all those crazy people out in the desert, the ones that, that are following some sort of a weird pillar of fire at night and some kind of a weird cloud during the day, and they've heard the stories. They know that every once in a while, someone from a neighboring tribe will attack these weirdos in the desert, and they get wiped out almost every time. And so the, the folk in Jericho, especially the political leaders, they're a little freaked out. Rahab knows what's going on. When she sees the spies come in, she recognizes these guys are different. They don't dress quite like us. Their, their uh, inflections and their, their uh, accents are a little bit different. They don't quite speak all the same languages. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. 
Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and, and she'd hidden them. And she said, yes, the, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the, the men left. I don't know which way they went, so go after them quickly and, and you might be able to catch up with them. But, parenthetically, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So in that time and place, the roofs were usually flat, and that's where the sun would beat down, and you could throw your grains that needed to be dried out before you winnowed them and pulled the, the seed, the grain. So she's hidden these guys under a pile of drying grain. Text goes on, so the, the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the, the gate was shut. But before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and she said to them, and here's where she declares her faith, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard about it, our hearts melted and every, everyone's courage failed because of you. And here's why. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's absolutely critical. What she's not saying is, pretty sure you guys are, gonna, are stronger than us militarily. What she's not saying is, yeah, you guys are, are going to take over, nobody can stop you. What she's saying is, you guys are weirdos, and we've been watching you do laps for 40 years, but there's something that is unnatural about your success. And it's your God. And incidentally, Rahab is actually more faith-filled in this moment than a whole bunch of the folk who are in the tribe of Israel. They're wondering and grumbling constantly. Like I said, I've been, been listening to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy. And over and over and over again, there's this cycle of God comes through and does amazing things. He provides manna from heaven. He puts, comes, causes water to come out from a rock. He's defeated their enemies. And over and over again, two days later, two weeks later, the people are going, oh, Moses, come on. Come on. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? So you had to bring us out here and kill us all. And then God will have to deal with them and deal with them and deal with them. And, and here Rahab, she's a more faithful God-fearer in this moment than most of God's own people. When we heard of it, our hearts melted. Everyone's courage failed because of you. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, she says, and here's where she cuts the deal. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, the entire clan, and that you will save us from death. 
our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, then we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house that she lived in was part of the city wall. And now she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. In other words, don't go towards the river and your own tents on the other side. They were within sight. Instead, go the other way, circle around up to the hills, wait until everybody chills out a little bit, then you can sneak back across the Jordan. Do that for three days, then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath that you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, and if anyone goes outside your house into the street when they attack, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible, they said. As for anyone who's in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell them, if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. And so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I want to talk for just a moment about Rahab's past because it has everything to do with not only the beauty and the glory of what God does with her baggage. Rahab was born into the wrong family. She's from Jericho. Born on the wrong side of the tracks, we could say. God has promised to destroy her people, including her family, because of their sin. Leviticus 18 actually lists God's offense with the Canaanite people, including the folks who lived in Jericho. Leviticus 18 lists their crimes against God, murder, killing children, bestiality, immorality. And God has even said in Leviticus 18, the very land vomits them out. So God's got, a, got an issue with them. And clearly, I think without knowing anything else about Rahab's family, we could say, yeah, that was kind of a messed up group because of the profession that she ends up in. And what's interesting to me is that despite whatever her family did or did not provide for her, despite the direction that her life ended up taking, she still loves her folks, loves her brothers and sisters, loves her cousins and nephews and nieces enough that she wants to rescue them, not just herself. And so she calls all of them together to try to save them. Rahab's past involved being from the wrong family, Jericho. She was part of the wrong religion. She was a Canaanite. Temple worship in Cana, in Canaan, uh, involved prostitution with both male and female priests. It sometimes involved the sacrifice of children. It's an evil that God has promised and pledged to destroy, to eradicate, to wipe out. That's part of her baggage. Third, Rahab's past, well, her profession was not the most honorable. No husband mess, uh, mentioned, no family other than extended, and what was likely a lonely, pain-filled existence. All right, this next one, ladies, don't attack. Don't attack. I'm just bringing a historical fact, all right? Not only was she 
from the wrong family, the wrong religion, the wrong profession. She was a woman. And that time and place, that was the wrong gender. It was a very patriarchal society. Women were often treated as possessions. Rahab had a past. She had some baggage. But, and here's what I want us to catch this morning. Your past does not have to determine your future. Your past does not have to determine your future. Amen? Amen. Let's say it aloud together. Your past does not have to determine your future. And so here's Rahab's choice. In the midst of dealing with all of her life stuff, all of her own baggage, she sees this opportunity, these two guys who are obvious enough to her that they are Hebrews. They're from that tribe that's camped across the Jordan. And she says, I'm going to make a different choice. And all of us have a choice, don't we? Despite the family that we come from or the pain and the shame of our own selfish choices, Rahab had a choice of what to do with her baggage. And so here's what she did. Rahab had heard stories of God, maybe from a customer, maybe just um, as she was growing up. Chances are really good that she's less than 40 years old, meaning ever since she was a little girl, she has heard stories of this group of people out in the desert wandering around in circles. And it seems mystical and it seems supernatural and the the cloud of smoke and the, the pillar of fire and they're sacrificing animals and they're wiping out anybody that attacks them and And there's word that maybe, maybe, maybe they're going to end up crossing and attacking our city. She's heard stories of God. She knows that they're eating this weird food that drops down every morning and that disappears in the midday sun. And in verse 9, she says this, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard. We have heard. And Rahab, in that moment, decides, not only am I ready for a change, but I see God's hand on these people. This God is different than the gods of stone and wood and metal that we worship. This God has power. This God is greater than any other God. And as a Canaanite woman with a checkered past, with a lot of baggage, she says, I've heard these stories and I'm going to do something with that knowledge. Maybe you've heard stories of God as well over the years, maybe even in this place. Not only did she hear these stories of God, but she says, I'm, I'm in. I want a piece of this. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to respond in faith to what little I understand about this God. The two spies show up. The king sends the soldiers to check. The risk to Rahab for lying to the king's soldiers and hiding the spies on her roof, the risk was life and death. If she'd have been found out, if she'd have been caught, that was it. She'd have been killed. She's now put her life on the line for a God that she's heard of and says, I'm rolling the dice on this. I'm putting all my eggs in this basket. I'm believing this God is the real God, and he alone can save me. 
and then she acted on her faith. She heard the stories of God, she responded in faith, and then she acted on it. She drops that scarlet cord out her window so it's hanging down on the wall, exterior of Jericho. Your past doesn't have to define your future. Your past does not have to define your future. And when Rahab made a choice to follow God by faith, here's what God does. He redeemed her past. He began to heal and comfort her pain. He restored her future, and he rescued her. Because that's what God does. Amen? That's what God does. He takes our mess and gives us a new life. He takes our brokenness and gives us forgiveness. Rahab's future. Man, I love this. Matthew chapter 1 is one of those flyover chapters. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you, you know when you're, when you're reading in Leviticus, and it's 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, you're having your quiet time, and you're, you're moving along, and it's like, oh, that's right, I'm still in Leviticus, if you're reading through. Flyover means your, your eyes just kind of, you know, you could be making your list for the day while you're reading because it, it's lists of rules or lists of, of the counting of families or the, the counting of the army or something like that. Matthew chapter 1 is one of those. It's a genealogy. My favorite Christmas sermon to preach by far is Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Because in it, we find the grandmas of Christmas. And every one of them is a surprise. You know who's in that list? The line of Jesus Christ, the line of Messiah, Rahab. Rahab. A Canaanite prostitute. Rahab is in the line of Christ. She's given a new life becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. She's given a new heritage. She's now in the family tree of Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And she's given a legacy of faith, despite her past. She's given a new legacy. And she will become known forever beyond this moment in Joshua chapter 2. She will forever be known for her risky faith, for her courage, and she is adopted into God's family. Just like you, if you're a follower of Jesus, just like me. Adoption means much more to me today than it did 15 years ago. Amy and I had four kids, uh, the old-fashioned way, biological kids. They're now 31 years old down to 25-ish. And when our youngest was seven, eight years old, um, we began to pray about the possibility of adopting. And through a variety of circumstances that I, I won't go all into, uh, we ended up beginning to, to look at the nation of Korea, South Korea. And... Um, after a really, really long time and a lot of money and a lot of tears. Fourteen and a half years ago, we 
flew over with our kids at the time. My folks came along because they've never met an adventure they didn't want in on. We flew over to Seoul, and uh, we brought home Isaiah Giuk, our son who's now 15. Almost exactly two years later, we get a phone call from Seoul, South Korea. And they said, hey, 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 we, we know that you're not in line, but same mom, same dad, hooked up again and have orphaned another little boy. He is the full blood brother of your Isaiah. Would you be interested in raising these boys together? Um, and I will tell you the truth. My first response was, do we get a discount? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's terrible. And we ended up, uh, had an elder board meeting that night, so I, I called our elder chair and just said, hey, um, can I bring the whole family in? Because we, we got something big to sort out. The, the lads laid hands on us, prayed over us, and we ended up going back to South Korea and bringing home Levi, who is now 13 years old. I don't know the entirety of the story of our two sons. Their baggage is different than my baggage. But their future is different. Our family's different. I'm a different dad with these boys. And their destiny has changed. I don't know what their life would have been like being raised in orphanages in a different country. But I can tell you that I would, tr I would not trade anything, anything, for these lads. And the crazy thing is, even though their hair color and their skin color is different than mine and different than their siblings, you know how they define themselves? We're heading us. We're heading us. I was telling a story uh, recently uh, to a couple of our kids, and, and the, the boys were, were listening in, and, and I'd, it, was, it was a story of one of my grandpas who had been shot in World War II, and, and Isaiah says, Dad, both of our great-grandpas got shot during the war. You see what he did there? Both of our great-grandpas. And I didn't even challenge it because I was too busy crying. Because in all reality, we are their family. You know the scripture uses adoption all through to describe what it's like to be brought into the family of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Rahab experienced the power of adoption, the power of her legacy being rewritten, of her family heritage being absorbed into something much greater than herself because she said, I know I'm a mess. I know I have no access to forgiveness. But I have this one opportunity 
to perhaps save myself and my clan, and I'm going for it. Because maybe, just maybe, this God is the only God. Maybe, just maybe, this God can forgive me and forgive my baggage and heal me and bring me into a different sort of legacy than I was headed for. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says it this way, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. God took a woman with a sketchy past, spared her life, redeemed her story, and put her in his family. And he wants to do the same thing with you and with your story. James chapter 2 says it this way, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not just by faith alone. In the same way, James says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And what he's simply saying is she acted on her good intentions. She cried out for rescue, and then she did what the agreement called for. Imagine the scene. Within days, weeks, the Israeli army begins to march, right? They've got the priests out front, the Ark of the Covenant out front, and for seven days, they march all the way around the city of Jericho. And every time they go by, you got to know the spies are going, all right, that, that's the one. See the scarlet thing? Don't kill anybody in there. But imagine the fear in the entire town, seven days. They, every day, they're marching around, every day. And day after day, Rahab is reminding herself, I'm believing God. I'm believing God. I'm believing God. Her neighbors are freaking out. And she keeps saying, I'm believing God. The tent city across the Jordan spreads as far as the eye can see, and Rahab continues to say, I'm believing God. And then the trumpets blare, and the clash of swords resounds, and the walls begin to shake and crumble, and Rahab continues to say, I'm believing God for our salvation. And God saved her from her past. He gave her a brilliant new future, and Rahab's past no longer was the determinative factor in her future. And so let me make this personal and we'll wrap. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. And I believe that Satan, after having had billions and billions of lives to interact with over thousands of years, he's learned our patterns. Is that fair? And so Satan knows, I'm going to use the same stuff I was using in the middle centuries. I'm going to use the same stuff I was using back with the Canaanites. I'm going to, I'm going to tempt to sin. Hey, you're missing out. Just say yes to a Scooby snack. 
You're going to be fine. God's holding out on you. No, you need to pursue that pleasure. It's not a big deal. And then as soon as you give in to the temptation, how does the, his tune change? It immediately goes to shame and condemn, condemnation, right? And so some of us knows, know, know what it's like to have Satan whisper to us, uh, you're, you're useless now. You can't be forgiven for that. I mean, for goodness sake, if anybody at church ever found out, you'll never get past your past. You're more broken than anybody else. You're used goods. You're dirty. You're never going to amount to anything if those people ever really knew this stuff about you. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. You've heard stories of God. You're hearing one right now. You can respond in faith, and you can act on that faith. Would you believe that God is God, your creator, your forgiver, your savior, your leader, and would you give him your life? Would you bow in prayer with me for just a moment? Just between your heart and the heart of God for a moment, Like Rahab, would you choose to give God your life, to give him your past, to give him your future? God wants to heal you, to free you, to give you new hope. And he alone is able to change the label on your life. From whatever it might be, Rahab was known as the prostitute. What a horrific label. Whatever your label might be, God can replace that with forgiven, fully accepted, completely loved. And so if there's something in your past that holds you back, if there are hurts from your family, hurts from your own sin choices, would you release it back to God and trust him to rewrite your story? And so I want to invite us to pray this prayer together. I'm, I'm just going to say it once, let you listen to it. If it resonates with you, I'll say it again. You make it yours. You could pray, Father, thank you that you love me right where I am. And I praise you that in Jesus I'm fully accepted, totally forgiven, and completely loved. Would you teach me to live in accordance with who you say that I am? If that resonates with you, I'm going to invite you to make it yours just in the quietness of your own mind between you and God. Make this prayer yours. Father, thank you that you love me right where I am. And I praise you that in Jesus, I'm fully accepted, totally forgiven, and completely loved. Teach me to live in accordance with who you say I am. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a good church for you to walk out your faith in Jesus, whether you've known him for a little bit 
or for a long time, or if you're still, you're still wondering, is this a God that I can give my life to? I encourage you to be reading in Joshua, as I think the series is going to be picking up from here and, and continuing forward. And I look forward to being back up here, continuing to work with your search team and Lord willing, celebrating the pastor that God has in mind in the near future. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a great afternoon.